I think I'm inherently drawn to things that are new and challenging. I think it's my inner pioneer spirit. And once I started becoming interested in Sub-Saharan African markets, I became more and more drawn to being an Africa specialist. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and successfully make a major career pivot. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you take the brave steps needed to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to explain how she relaunched her career from being a business journalist to the commercial director of a cocoa and nut exporter in Ivory Coast. We'll discuss what it takes to restart your career in a completely different part of the world and how to thrive even when you're just starting off in a new industry. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll talk about how to understand the center of gravity in your career. Today, I'm speaking with Victoria Crandall, a sub-Saharan African specialist who's passionate about entrepreneurship, disruptive technologies, and agricultural commodities. She's had several career transitions, segueing from business journalism to soft commodity research to commodity trading. Victoria is currently the commercial director of a cocoa and raw cashew nut exporter in Ivory Coast. She's also the creator and host of the Young African Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, Victoria is actually our first guest based in Africa, and she's going to share some useful personal anecdotes from her international moves and experiences there that I hope can help inspire you to make some brave moves in your own career. Victoria spoke with me from Abidjan, Ivory Coast. Okay, hello, Victoria, and welcome to Career Relaunch. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thrilled to be here, Joseph. So you are our very first guest on this show based in West Africa. So I want to talk about your experiences there in sub-Saharan Africa the challenges you've tackled reinventing yourself and your perspectives as someone who's a minority in many ways there in the Ivory Coast. But before we get to all that, can you just kick us off by telling us what you're up to right now in your career and your life? I work as a commercial director at a Ivorian cocoa and cashew nut exporter. So what I'm busy doing right now is pretty much booking contracts, making sure that all of our cocoa exports are going out on time. The company has also launched a small cocoa processing factory. So I'm actually getting my first exposure to manufacturing and managing a local factory, which has been pretty interesting. Can you just paint a little bit of a picture for me, just because I've never been to the Ivory Coast. Can you just describe a little bit about where you live there where you work, like what's the overall environment there and and the setup there for you? Well, first of all, Ivory Coast is, you know, it's a tropical country. There are pretty much two seasons here. It's either raining or it's not. So we're just about to go into the rainy season. Abidjan is more developed as compared to other large cities in West Africa. So as compared to Accra in Ghana or Lagos in Nigeria, Abidjan has much better infrastructure. So there's power 24-7, clean drinking water. If you go to any shop, you can find loads of imported goods. There's a nice movie theater in town. An hour's drive away, there's a beautiful beach. It's a very comfy lifestyle. I think it's kind of the best secret that maybe a lot of expats in Ivory Coast maybe don't want to tell everybody, but it's, it's a very pleasant life. 
Now, I know you're American and you're there in the Ivory Coast, so I want to talk about how you ultimately landed there. But before we do that, and before we get into more of your role there as a commercial director, I'd like to go back in time and talk through the two major chapters in your career prior to this period in your life, and then we can dive into more detail on the dynamics of your current situation. And I was wondering, Victoria, if you could just tell us a little bit about your time going way back as a business journalist. My first full-time job was working as a freelance business journalist, but it was a rather atypical job. I was hired for a business intelligence company based out of London, also offices in New York and Hong Kong. They cover mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, joint ventures, and they hired me to read the newspapers in Arabic because after I finished my studies in the U.S., I went to Syria and I studied Arabic for two and a half years. And I was very fortunate that I lived there right before the civil war broke out and um, became proficient in Arabic and moved to Dubai. And luckily, I knew a lot of contacts in the journalism community and was able to reach out to someone at the Financial Times who put me in touch with someone at Merger Market. So... Working as a freelancer, I could live anywhere in the world. I was pretty much a digital nomad before that was a trendy term. Uh And that allowed me to live in Dubai. I also lived in Cairo, Egypt. I also traveled to Lagos for six weeks. And then my kind of my last stop when I was still working with this company as a business journalist was in Casablanca, Morocco. Okay. Now, had you always planned on leaving the U.S. and living this sort of international lifestyle? And if so, what was the draw for you? I didn't, but in hindsight, it's not surprising that my interest that I was led to make a career abroad. I have an older sister who has been very influential to me. When she was only 24, she got a job in Germany working for Adidas. She being eight years older than me and having such an influence, I kind of looked to her as a mentor or saw that, oh, wow, you can do that. And also we had traveled a lot together when I was in high school. I would go and visit her in Europe and we'd travel somewhere for two weeks. And having studied also, you know, languages in high school and in college, I don't know. I was just always, I love travel. I love learning about new places and cultures, learning new languages And once I fell down the Middle East rabbit hole, so to speak, when I was in college and kind of just fell in love with Arabic, to me, it seemed very logical of like, okay, well, I'll go and live in an Arabic speaking country for a year, two years. And, you know, that will open plenty of doors. So that's kind of how it happened. So you're traveling around, you're doing this journalistic work. What happened next for you? The big game changer was that I became enthralled with Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, specifically with business in Sub-Saharan Africa, because when I was working at this business intelligence company, they gave me the Sub-Saharan African press to cover because no one was really interested in it. And that was because Sub-Saharan Africa, still excluding South Africa, it's pretty much still a frontier market. You don't have a lot of large size M&A deals. So they were like, okay, you take... Kenya, Nigeria, and Ghana. And I just, I thought it was fascinating because I think I'm inherently drawn to things that are new and challenging. I think it's my inner pioneer spirit. And particularly reading about Nigeria, I just felt like, wow, like this seems like such a crazy, complicated place, but like so fascinating. And you look at its population size and its natural resources, and it's just like, wow, this place is going to take off at some point. And so, 
once I started becoming interested in sub-Saharan African markets, and this was also concurrent with all of the political problems in the Middle East, because this was after the Arab Spring, I became more and more drawn to being an Africa specialist. How did you go about becoming a, a quote-unquote expert in that? And what was that journey like for you? I think it's amazing that if you're curious and you're hungry for information, you can become an expert relatively quickly. I tend to be very self-deprecating, so I really hesitate to call myself an expert. But given that there's so much information out there, you know, you can learn a lot very quickly. So I didn't have any business background. I had studied international relations. I was really drawn to politics and kind of always thought I would stay a journalist. Just reading business papers, I was actually able to teach myself a lot. So when I worked as a business journalist, it was kind of an education as well about markets, how they worked, financing. And again, nowhere near an expert, but at least it made me comfortable with the jargon. And I was able to build a network and I think establish credibility pretty quickly. How did you make the transition into working in soft commodity research for a bank? And for those listeners who aren't familiar with the term soft commodities, can you just very quickly explain the difference between soft and hard commodities? Soft commodities are agricultural commodities. Coffee, cocoa, cotton, grains, whether that be corn, sorghum, rice, oil seeds, etc. If you're going to think of other commodities, they tend to be extractives. So it's, yeah, diamond, gold, oil, any type of platinum, et cetera. And I got interested in commodities in a very roundabout way. As I mentioned earlier, I was living in Morocco. And at that point in my life, I felt very adrift. I had taken this promotion as North to be North Africa correspondent and moved to Casablanca, Morocco. And I don't really like North Africa as a region. I don't find it as interesting as, let's say, Sub-Saharan Africa. And for me, it was a pit stop. It was pretty much that, okay, I'm transitioning away from the Middle East and I want to get to Sub-Saharan Africa, but I haven't found that opportunity to kind of take me there yet. I had the good fortune when I was in Morocco working freelance, I could, of course, take other projects. And I was able to take a month-long project that took me to Abidjan. And that was in March 2013, two years after a period of conflict. And so when I came here, things were, were calm and investors were starting to come back. And it just felt very dynamic and something, something was happening here. And on a personal level, I, I just really liked it. I found people were very friendly. I felt very... People are very welcoming. And I felt like, oh, wow, Cote d'Ivoire's economy is very dynamic. It has agriculture, it has an energy sector, it has an oil refinery. It's the largest economy in Francophone West Africa. And I'm working on this economic research project. And one of my interviews was with the head of soft commodities research at a Pan-African bank, EcoBank. And I had a very good interview with the head of research. And a couple of days later, when I submitted the quotes from our interview, I had also found out just kind of randomly through LinkedIn that they were actually looking to recruit a soft commodities analyst to be based somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. So when I submitted the quotes to him, I said, hey, I saw this JD for the soft commodities analyst position, and I'd really like to apply. 
I ended up getting the job and five to six months later, I moved to Abidjan and I've been here ever since. I guess what's in my mind, Victoria, as I'm thinking about this is if I were to make that kind of a a move, both geographically and also in terms of I guess the function of my job, I would personally be be dealing a, a lot with what I would call imposter syndrome. Did you feel any of that or was that not so much an issue for you? Oh, it was a huge issue for me. I've kind of always felt like I was a fraud or at least a misfit working in a bank because I always felt like, oh, you know, I'm like a liberal arts, social sciences type of person and an ex-journalist and I don't have that credibility I never did a CFA. I didn't do an MBA. I didn't study finance. And sometimes that would get to be, but most of the time I would just talk myself out of it and be like, hey, you're the one who's here doing the work. And it was a position that they really struggled to fill because unfortunately, a lot of Africans aren't that interested in agriculture. And they don't see it as something of like where they want to be an agricultural commodities analyst. And because I was just naturally I gravitated toward that position and particularly wanting to study cocoa because Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, is the world's largest cocoa producer, I was able to learn very quickly and to really cut my teeth and establish credibility. The only way I handled it is that, you know, sometimes you have bad days or you have maybe bad experiences that will trigger or at least make you doubt yourself. But if you look kind of at your body of work and like what you're accomplishing on the day to day, it's like, no, the work speaks for itself. That's really interesting. And I guess you're right. Sometimes you just have to dive in and just give your best shot and know that you've got a reason for being there. And there was a reason why they hired you and you deserve to be there. So you're working at Echo Bank and then you eventually make a shift into working in the cocoa and raw cashew nut export business and industry. How did that transition come about for you? That was an interesting one and one I never would have anticipated because again, I always told myself, oh, I could never be a commercial trade person because I always look at traders and it's like, you know, they tend to be men. They're very aggressive. It's a very testosterone kind of. That's what I have in my mind too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I had reached a glass ceiling at Echo Bank and I was kind of becoming frustrated with my work and felt like I couldn't really advance to the level that I wanted professionally. And so I resigned. There was like another step in between because when I resigned, I decided, okay, I'm going to set up my own consultancy firm because clearly I'm going to have tons of clients. And I mean, to my credit, I had established a really great fantastic network in West Africa. And I really do have this niche knowledge. However, it's just very difficult to predict how many projects or clients you're going to have. And so over that year that I was freelancing, it was very much feast or famine and it was pretty difficult. Uh, However, the last client I had towards the end of, I had maybe been freelancing, I don't know, six to eight months at this point. And my last client was this local cocoa and cashew nut exporter. I had a one month mandate. The project went very well. And at the end of the project, he made me a full-time offer to be commercial director in his company. And I hesitated maybe for one second. And then I said, no, I need to do this because I knew that Truly, the only way to learn is to do it, you know, it's by doing. And I had essentially spent two and a half years talking to other people to know, okay, how do you 
purchase and export cocoa beans. And sure enough, when I started this new job, I mean, I learned more about cocoa trading in two months than I did in two years working in a bank. Can you also just explain a little bit about this dynamic you were just talking about, Victoria, where you're in a male-dominated trade and you're female, you're a foreigner. What's that like to be, for lack of a better term, a minority in this industry, both in terms of the work itself, but also just geographically there, not being native to the Ivory Coast in what I'm guessing is driven by a lot of local experts or people who have a lot of tribal knowledge about how things work in that industry? It's a double-edged sword about being a foreigner, because on one hand, it privileges you in a lot of ways. You get access to a lot of information and to people by virtue of, in my case, being a white American. It also means that you're less effective at doing some things, because unfortunately, I think as your listeners are going to know or make sense to them that the commodity business or any type of extractive business, particularly in the export side, it's very susceptible to predatory and rent-seeking behavior. And that's particularly in developing countries. And by who I am, those are things that I cannot engage in, which is for me, of course, all the better. But secondly, I would say as for being a woman, it's pretty challenging because I've always based my identity and what matters most to me of being my intelligence, my integrity, my work ethic, and sometimes particularly working in an African culture or my boss is actually Lebanese. So working with someone who's Arab, for instance, and just older of a different generation, sometimes you can feel that, okay, I've been reduced to how I look, or there are certain things that I can't do because people do not take me seriously. Sometimes having the impression that my gender, it undercuts me in some way, and that I'm not taken as seriously because I'm a woman. And I mean, I've gone to industry functions, I've spoken at conferences where I was the only woman in the room. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with what I'm going to guess is potentially a lot of incoming fire or being subject to criticism, not because of the actual work you're doing, but just because of who you are and what you look like on the outside? Honestly, I think the best way to deal with it is, is always humor. I mean, I remember sitting in a meeting. I was with my director. I was with a client who's Dutch. A lot of cocoa importers are actually based in the Netherlands. And my boss had kind of made a wisecrack of like, oh, Victoria, you know, we're so happy that she gets to represent us abroad. And there was kind of an undertone to it that if I'm being, I think, maybe more expansive and generous, can say, okay, he's a 60-year-old Lebanese man, don't take offense, but also felt a little misogynistic. Like, again, my value was really just reduced to how I looked you know, and the client laughed. So I felt like I was almost on a fly on a wall of like this boys club. And it felt very diminishing. But when I kind of look more broadly, it's that, okay, if I could not execute, if I could not do my duties, I would not be here. And I'm not going to beat myself up about constantly like, oh, do I get access? Do I get these meetings because of how I look or because of what I say and what I do? Has there been anything that has been particularly surprising about 
how you have been able to excel in this industry? I think with anything, you learn by doing and you learn by making mistakes, which is incredibly painful. The first thing a a junior trader will learn is that you have losing trades. You have trades that will go bad. You will lose money. It's a part of the game. It's a part of the job. But going through that first losing trade and knowing that, wow, I lost tens of thousands of dollars for my company is really hard to deal with. Mm Half of the time, I think people really don't know what they're doing. And there really is a lot of truth to fake it till you make it. You have to be willing to learn on the job, but also to maintain that authority and credibility at the same time. Now, one of the things we talk about on this show is about throwing yourself into unfamiliar environments and finding a way to make it. Is there something about you that you feel has allowed you to effectively navigate the challenge of being in an unfamiliar place, of working in an unfamiliar market, of being a minority in multiple ways in what sounds like a somewhat homogenous workforce. I guess I'm just wondering what you feel is something about you that's allowed you to not only survive, but to actually thrive there. I would say it's experience by now because it's been 10 years. It'll be in May. It'll be 10 years since I graduated from university. And in September, it'll be 10 years since I left the U.S., to establish my career abroad, essentially. And I've lived in so many foreign countries, Syria, Dubai, Egypt, Morocco, yeah, five countries now, that I think I'm just used to my identity really being tied to being a foreigner. I mean, it's like the first word I learn in any new language, it's foreigner, because I want to know when someone's talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's like anything, it's like any skill, it's the more experience you have, the better you're able to deal with it. And I would say professionally, particularly being commercial director in a very volatile, I think, complicated industry such as cocoa trading, it's really made me realize that, no, I am the boss and that I have to make decisions. And I have to make those decisions according to the information that I have at my disposal at the time. And then I'm responsible for them. And that was very scary to me because I had never had that level of responsibility before. And that ultimately, I think, has been the biggest gain of this job. And everything else, I think, honestly, if you treat people with respect, if you have a sense of humor, if you're willing to try new things, learn local language to try to endear yourself to others, that goes a really long way. Before we wrap up, I do have just two more questions for you. One is about your career changes, and the other one's just about the cocoa industry in general, just because I'm interested in that. You've obviously gone through many career changes from journalism to soft commodity research to commodity trading. What's something you've learned about yourself, having been in many situations where you've had to find a way to thrive in these unfamiliar territories? And by territories, I mean that both literally and also figuratively. That I'm much more resilient than I ever thought that, again, it's like having lived in so many different countries and ones that were very different than uh, the U.S. where I grew up, there are almost systems you can follow. You know, it's all about, okay, let me network and meet up with other people who are also expats or foreigners and figure out how they did things and how do I go out and make friends and how do I learn to build a life here and kind of establish a community. And once you do that, it's not daunting. And any kind of new challenge that comes your way, you know, you can find a solution to it. You can work it out. One of the things that 
I uh, wanted to also ask you about was I just can't let you go without asking you a little bit about about <laughs> cocoa and and you know cashew nut exporting. So one of the things I noticed about myself when I was working in the consumer goods industry was that it affected my own shopping and buying behavior. Like when I used to work for an ice cream manufacturer, I I'm now really particular whenever I'm buying ice cream products. How has working in a cocoa business affected your own purchasing behaviors when you're buying cocoa products or any other chocolate products? I've actually become a lot more cynical about a lot of initiatives that try to guarantee some type of standards. I know what the supply chain is like in Ivory Coast. I know the realities of the industry and I know how complicated it is to guarantee actually how buyers, where they're sourcing their cocoa beans. I feel actually very conflicted about a lot of, you know, fair trade products or UTZ Rainforest Alliance, because I think if anyone ever came to a country like Ivory Coast or Ghana, you realize that it's very, very, very difficult to establish a traceable supply chain. Yeah, I always wondered about those labels that you see on mostly like chocolate bars and things like Rainforest Alliance or Fair Trade or any sort of soft commodity. You see those stamps and labels, and I always just wonder how much those really mean. Yeah, I mean, it's more because... 20 years ago, almost, there was an uproar about the use of child labor in the cocoa industry. And so that spurred legislation in the U.S. that required that cocoa companies really have sustainability initiatives, that have traceable procurement strategies, et cetera. But the reality is that child labor is kind of a part of the landscape, is that these communities are very poor. And so when students often, they can't even go to school because they don't have a birth certificate to go to school, you know, and they they work out in, in the cocoa fields with their parents and they're not maybe necessarily doing hazardous work. You know, maybe they're collecting cocoa pods, you know, something kind of equivalent of how kids in the Midwest, you know, in the summer, they help their parents out on the on the farm. It's actually a much more nuanced and complicated subject, and it still lacks a lot of data and a lot of understanding. It's almost there's been this emotional knee-jerk reaction to an issue like child labor with good reason, you know, in the cocoa industry, but it makes companies very reactive. And so then the solution is, okay, we're going to have all these certification schemes, but then the whole problem becomes, well, how do we audit actually what's going on in the ground? And that's the very tricky part. Oh, this is very, uh, very educational and very illuminating. Yeah. So we keep talking about this all day, but I got to wrap us up here uh, right now. But before we go, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your podcast, which is called the Young African Entrepreneur Podcast. And I know this is something that you're working on. In addition to everything you've got going on with your day job, can you just tell us a little bit more about the podcast and the types of people you have on the show? Yeah. So I kind of always being a business nerd, like a sub-Saharan Africa business nerd, luckily, because I have a, a great network and I know lots of people doing really cool things in business, like I wanted to launch this podcast focusing on entrepreneurship in sub-Saharan Africa. And I've interviewed people, kind of entrepreneurs who've, who are introducing disruptive technologies and supply chain management use of tractors. There's a really cool company in Nigeria that is almost like an Uber for tractors. It's a really fun passion project that uh, kind of that gives me something creative to do and gives me an excuse to talk to really interesting, cool people. 
Very interesting. So we'll definitely include a link in the show notes so that people can check out your podcast. So yeah, thanks so much. This has been really fascinating and educational, Victoria, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. So thanks so much for telling us about your life there in the Ivory Coast and how you've navigated some seriously major career changes. So I would just love to wish you the best of luck with your work there in the cocoa and cashew nut industry and also with your podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Joseph. This was a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Victoria's thoughts on finding your way in a brand new job function, what it takes to restart your life in a new country, and some insights on the cocoa industry. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about moving toward the center of gravity in your career. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to thank Grammarly for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Built by linguists and language lovers, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors so you don't have to. And as a Career Relaunch listener, you can download Grammarly for free by going to getgrammarly.com relaunch. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Victoria alluded to when she was talking about how she just felt this strong pull toward working in sub-Saharan Africa. And this reminded me about a concept I first heard about on another podcast called Masters of Scale by Reed Hoffman, which I would highly recommend. He did an interview with Ev Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, who went on to create Medium. And Ev Williams is a guy whose thoughts I find really fascinating, mostly because he's just got some really unique perspectives on business. And in that episode, Reed Hoffman talks about this concept of your center of gravity in your career which is basically the area you find yourself gravitating toward again and again in your life and your professional life. For example, in Ev Williams' case, his center of gravity relates to the discovery, distribution, and transmission of information, which lines up well with the social media platforms he's launched. So that got me thinking about this question of what my center of gravity is in my career, and a related question of what it feels like when your work doesn't line up with your center of gravity. And I guess the best way to describe that feeling for me is sort of like a feeling of longing, almost like you're going through the motions of your day job, but your mind is elsewhere, wishing you were making use of some other strength you have or tapping into a natural interest you've always had that feels like a more natural extension of who you are. I'll give you an example from my own career. One of the first college internships I had was working in a pharmacology lab at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, where I spent an entire summer growing cancer cell cultures in Petri dishes, working with a lot of lab equipment and spending hours each day looking into microscopes to count cells on a grid. I personally didn't enjoy that work very much, mostly because I was focused on things rather than people, which wasn't really my forte. And actually something sort of illuminating happened when I came to the end of that internship. I remember thinking that the most enjoyable part of that experience wasn't actually the lab work, but actually the lunches I had with people when I got a chance to hear about their careers as scientists, postdocs, and professors, not necessarily the actual science they were focused on, but just hearing them open up about their own challenges, their relationships in the labs, and even their career and life stories. I'm not 
really sure why people were so open with me that summer. Maybe because I was this really bright-eyed college student and a temporary visitor in that lab. And because of this weird dynamic, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes we end up being the most open talking with people we don't know and don't think we're ever going to see again. But aside from that, I do consider myself a reasonably good listener, and I enjoy listening to people. And I noticed this pattern coming up again and again in my career, where no matter what my job was, people seemed to feel comfortable divulging their issues and struggles with me. When I was working in the corporate world, for example, a lot of colleagues, some of whom I worked directly with and some of whom I didn't work directly with, ended up sharing a lot of personal challenges with me, especially when they were going through tough issues at work or in their lives. And I really enjoyed this feeling of them confiding in me. And I also found myself gravitating toward these people. I actually feel like I'm at my best when I'm talking through someone else's negative issues rather than the positive highlights of their lives, which is kind of interesting. And back in the day, that led me to toy with the idea of becoming a psychologist, which I didn't end up pursuing. So this has been sort of a unifying interest in my life and career, or one of my centers of gravity, listening to others and trying to help them gain some clarity when they're struggling. But listening to others or being a mentor was only an ancillary part of my former jobs. And it wasn't really until I started my own business that my professional work became focused on listening to others, both as a career coach and also as a podcast host. And working in that center of gravity in my career is one of the reasons why I now find my work so gratifying. So I'm talking about this with you because I think it's important to identify your natural center of gravity in your life, with your relationships, and especially with your work. Because if you're like me, when you're operating outside of this center, it can feel a little forced or unsettling. Also, if you're like me, it can take a while to identify your center of gravity, especially if you have a lot of different interests. I guess the way to think about it is to try and figure out the common theme that has unified those interests. So in Victoria's case, that center of gravity was sub-Saharan Africa. In my case, it was something around my natural inclination to listen to others' struggles. If you can identify that unifying skill or interest, or just that consistent tug you're feeling in your career... That can serve as a clue into how you can do work you find more fulfilling. It may not be something that's blatantly obvious. It may just be a constant quiet thought that kind of nags you in the back of your mind or a subtle pattern you notice coming up again and again in your career. Try to pay attention to that because that pull you're feeling may be your professional center of gravity. And your professional center of gravity is often where you can do your most rewarding, gratifying work. This takes me to a quote from Steven Spielberg. When you have a dream, it doesn't often come at you screaming in your face, this is who you are. This is what you must be for the rest of your life. Sometimes a dream almost whispers. Your instincts, your human personal intuition always whispers. It never shouts. So you have to be ready to hear what whispers in your ear. So my challenge to you is to think about what's been whispering in your ears. What's something that seems to keep popping up that could signal where your center of gravity is in your professional life? It could be something people keep telling you about one of your strengths or a talent that keeps showing up. 
or just an idea you can't stop toying with. Try to capture what your center of gravity is, then take one action this week that could move you closer to that place. Before we go today, in our last episode, I invited you to vote for the former guest you would like to hear from again in episode 50, which will air toward the end of this year. And I appreciate all those people who've already voted, but if you haven't voted yet, you can help pick the guest for this special episode. All you have to do is go to careerrelaunch.net slash vote 50 and vote for your favorite guest. In the running are four guests from our most popular episodes in the past, researcher turned wellness educator Kelly Cara in Austin, Texas, restaurant manager turned magazine founder Stephen Satterfield in San Francisco, agency director turned set designer Polly Aspinall in London, and teacher turned artist Sandeep Johal in Vancouver. The idea here is to check in on how they're doing in their career change journey and how it's been going since we last spoke. Again, you can vote for your favorite guest at careerrelaunch.net slash vote five zero. If you're enjoying Career Relaunch and interested in sharing any other thoughts with me about the show, I'd love for you to leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts at careerrelaunch.net slash 41, where you can also find a summary of all the key concepts from today's show. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 41. Stay tuned for our next episode, where I'll be featuring a former hotel lounge pianist turned digital marketer in the pharmaceutical industry. Also, if you know someone who has made a unique career pivot, or if you would like to share your own career change story on the show, you can apply to be a guest at careerrelaunch.net slash apply. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community, and a special thanks again to Victoria Crandall for sharing her story with us today. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington. Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll see you next time.